0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: You guys, I know that the second impeachment trial of the president is an historic, unprecedented, actually, and solemn event. But I don't think we should let the moment Pass without thanking the universe for the gift that is his lawyer bruce castor
2: oh m g this guy is to presidential impeachment trials what marianne williamson is to
1: democratic
3: debates <laughs> oh my god yeah it's just so cringeworthy though
1: it's like I, there were a lot of memes of like you know unfrozen caveman lawyer and like <laughs> like a chicken lawyer like from you know from the crash from outer space. I think he outdid all of them. I really. No, do. You know,
2: I mean, it was. I was just slackjawed from the beginning of it. It was. It was fabulous, and it really reminded me of Marianne Williamson. You were just excited every time it was her turn to talk. Because he had
3: no idea had what no would come idea, out but, of her
2: mouth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I want to propose that she should get in trouble and have him represent her.
1: On any hill, you would be with her, wouldn't you? Oh, yes. Even impeachment. I can get behind this. Hello, and welcome to Rational Security, the unfrozen caveman lawyer does impeachment edition.
3: <laughs> Excellent. Yes. I'm oh
1: my just God. a caveman. I'm just a caveman. I don't know about your constitutional processes. Actually, if he had said that, it would have been more coherent this, totally. this thing, he was this this literally this thing was like it looked like an improv where like the audience had like shouted out a prompt or something they're like greek republic go did you know there was a greek republic p.s there wasn't but apparently there was
2: <laughs> yeah no yeah athens didn't have a senate um uh, the on in lieu of fun last night i did a poll of the audience which phrase best describes bruce castor's presentation phrase one was bad trial advocacy Phrase two was acid trip and phrase three was Saturday Night Live and Saturday Night Live won substantially acid trip came in a solid second Uh. bad trial advocacy was a distant third.
1: Oh, my God. It was it was really a gift. And apparently Trump, according to Maggie Haberman's reporting, was furious. And I have no doubt also because on top of everything, Bruce Castor was wearing an ill-fitting pinstripe suit. Oh, that is the worst sin in Trump world. Might have been the worst one. Oh, my God, you guys. I am Shane Harris here in the remote jungle studio with my good friends Ben Wittes and Tamara Kaufman. What is? Hi, guys.
3: Hi, Shane.
1: We are we're in day two of the impeachment. We're expecting a snowstorm. It's just—it's all happening, and yet feels. If the
3: government shuts down, does the impeachment trial get delayed?
1: (laughs) That's a really good question. Is Jamie Raskin an essential worker? Yeah, I'm sure Bruce Castor is not.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Would we notice if he were gone?
1: (laughs) I tweeted yesterday that he should—he should be like that lawyer who accidentally had the cat filter on. Do you see this?
2: I mean, the cat lawyer thing happened concurrently. With concurrently, that. yeah. It
3: was actually, yeah. It, it was it was the perfect encapsulation of the day. But I give credit to the cat lawyer because he had a real sense of self consciousness and humor about it. He, he sure liked, did. I gave pleasure to people. He did <laughs> That's it. awesome.
1: He seemed like an actually charming, like sweet country lawyer.
3: Yeah, maybe Trump could hire him. <laughs>
1: He could do, I'm not sure he could do worse. Could
3: not do worse.
1: I'm really sure. Oh, my God. On the podcast this week, President Trump's impeachment trial begins in the Senate as a prosecutor in Georgia is investigating his efforts to overturn the election in that state. President Biden sets out to revitalize national security and foreign policy in his administration. And the U.S. is perhaps cautiously rejoining world bodies it left under Donald Trump. Um, so we've already been talking about the impeachment, Ben. Let me just start with you on this. I mean, let's just like just start with the uh, the the I, I don't know the robot chicken country frozen lawyer in the room. Um, this, I mean, this was an astonishingly lopsided presentation. Um, you know, you had on the one hand Trump's lawyers who were you know, meandering, bewildering, nearly incoherent. I mean, and was reading from notes, which made no sense at all. I, I, I couldn't tell if he'd rehearsed this or what. But he also had to follow this just incredibly compelling presentation from Jamie Raskin, who I think, whether you believe the president should be convicted or not. I don't think you can argue that Jamie Raskin gave a riveting uh, presentation. He talked about lawmakers fearing for their lives. They showed this gut-wrenching video of Trump's comments overlaid with scenes from the attack on the Capitol on January 6th, kind of as their opening you know, body of evidence. And I think you know, even for those of us who've seen that footage repeatedly and read about it, it's still shocking. And of course, these are people having to look at this evidence who were, of course, in the chamber when, when the Capitol was being attacked. So incredibly lopsided. I don't think any of us anticipate this is going to affect the outcome. So how are you processing what we saw on the first day of this historic trial?
2: Well, I guess I would start with the fact that, you know, the presentations were, in fact, just as lopsided as you described. It was four hours of debate, in which one side was comically bad, and the other side was really compelling, and by the way, had the better arguments both on the jurisdictional point and on the merits of the thing. So they were, you know, they were playing a better hand and playing it much better. And all of that had the effect of moving exactly one vote, which is to say Bill Cassidy of Louisiana went from on January 26th voting to dismiss the case as unconstitutional to voting to let it proceed yesterday. So for, you know, it's very rare in the Senate, you get to test what good advocacy and good arguments are worth in the form of votes. And in this case, they're worth 1% of the Senate. And, you know, the managers need to move 11% more than that, at least in order to ultimately prevail. And that's, you know, seems like it is unquestionably not going to happen. And so I think the, the, you know, the first point is that there is, this is really more about creating a record and making Republican senators vote in the face of that record in as embarrassing a fashion as possible, rather than it actually being about persuasion. And so I guess that was my takeaway from yesterday, that there is you know, not a lot of elasticity here in the jury pool. And so what you're really doing is you're trying to create as much cognitive dissonance as humanly possible for 17 or 18 Republican senators who know better and to thereby set up a mechanism by which you can kind of beat them over the head with that cognitive dissonance for the next two to four to six years, depending on when they were elected. And that's a, you know, that's a unfortunate result here, because I think we would all prefer to live in a world in which the consequence of putting on a really good presentation at a Senate trial was maybe that you prevailed, and maybe that the senators actually we're persuadable about things, but that's not the world that we live in.
1: Well, it seems like there's <clears throat> one way of prevailing might be, and this is more near term or medium term, is how many of this sort of, you know, Republican senators who don't want this to be the party of Trump, can you persuade to peel over to your side? Like Ben Sass being a great example, right, of somebody who was censured by the Nebraska Republican Party and kind of came out with a video saying, basically, screw you guys. I mean, you know, just because I wouldn't bend the knee to this, as he put it, one weird dude, you're going to censure me. Like if Ben Sass does not vote to convict Donald Trump, like then that's it. I mean, it, th- those are just hollow words. But if there are a number, it seems to me who cross over the vote is, you know, has no actual legal consequence, but it does have a political one, which is to say we're repudiating everything this man represents and we want to go in a new direction.
3: Yeah, I I feel like that's, the, you're right that that is the thing to watch. But I also think that, that as Ben suggested, that's the thing that actually isn't going to happen. Like, if Ben Sass in fact, votes to convict, I will be impressed. And I'll be surprised because I think, frankly, if there were a secret ballot, Okay, you'd have individual senators actually thinking their way through this. What's the percentage for me? Do I think there's a chance for the Republican Party to actually oust Trumpism and end this cult of personality? Or are we doomed to deal with it? You know, what's my primary look like next time I'm up in a secret ballot? They could make those calculations. But in an open vote, which this will be, they're going to hang together one way or the other. And I think Mitch McConnell made his one bid, you know, to say, hey, our party should disown this and move on. And he did that actually the right, the moment before the January 6th attack in the speech he made on the Senate floor in which he repudiated Trump and repudiated the big lie. And he failed. Like we've seen in everything that's happened since that the the Republican Party is not with him or not with where he was at that moment, and Mitch McConnell is going to go where the rest of them are going to go, and none of them is really going to be, I mean, Mitt Romney maybe, but I just don't expect any individual courage. So I actually
2: am a little bit more optimistic than that. I don't think there's a lot of reason for members to be voting to hear this case if they're not open to the possibility of convicting in it. And the reason is that the best argument for acquitting Trump is this jurisdictional argument that they were talking about yesterday. That's actually a plausible argument and it's it has a respectable constituency in both conservative and liberal legal scholars. And so I think if you're if you're going to vote to acquit Trump it's not going to be on the facts it's going to be on the basis that the senate shouldn't be hearing a late impeachment six republican senators take the opposite view i assume that they are i think it'd be very odd for ben sass to say i will you know stand my ground on the jurisdictional point, but I really think on the merits, Donald Trump's behavior was okay here. So <laughs> I, I'm kind of somewhere in between. You I think guys. you're
3: assuming that they feel concerned about having a substantive argument to make. This is just this is a political exercise and all they need is the tiniest fig leaf and they already have it. Well but <laughs> but but then why didn't
2: they wear it yesterday?
3: All but six of them did, and right. you need and you need eleven more to convict, oh, and you're not going
2: to get them. Well, but wait a minute. I'm not saying that you're going to get 17 total. I'm I started by saying you're not. The question is whether the six Republicans who you know who voted yesterday to hear the case oh, are open to. So, I, I think we're going to get more of them than just Mitt Romney. I think the effect in the Senate is going to be very similar to the effect in the House. The effect in the House was first time you had an impeachment, you had no Republicans. Second time you had about 5% of the caucus. And here, you're, you know, your first time you had Mitt Romney in the Senate. And this time you're going to have three, four, five, six Republicans. So I think like the question is how many more, if any, than that do you get? And I do think it's a little bit of a spectrum, like, you know, you send a stronger message with five than with one. You send a stronger message with 10 than with five. And while you don't get any of the legal points until you get to 17, you do get to be able to say, hey, a strong bipartisan majority voted to convict Trump starting around five or six Republican senators. So I don't think it's inconsequential how many of them you get.
1: There's also, I think, a a security angle to this insofar as the presentations that we saw yesterday and that we'll see more of today, which pur- reportedly is going to include footage, I think maybe shot by Capitol Police that people haven't seen publicly yet. This stands as a document to, you know, a, a riot that overtook the Capitol, members of which were organized extremist groups like the Proud Boys and others that are in there. And I think that this becomes a moment for a lot of people who maybe have slept a bit, let's say, in this country, you know, on the threat from far-right violence to say, holy crap, I mean, this this, this is what happened here? I mean, if you hadn't seen the images yet, you know, the, the House impeachment managers talked about teachers and students watching at home. You know, this is going to be taught in schools for generations to come. And, the, and just the, what's being put in evidence, I think, is... You know, both the historical record, but also strikes me as a warning for the kind of security threats that we've talked about on the show and that are now facing the country, I mean, even separate from whether they were controlled on this day by Donald Trump. These are real groups and bad people who want to break stuff and cause violence and who came that day to do mayhem. We should take note of a breaking development today as well, uh, related to. President Trump's efforts to overturn the election. Uh, just reading from my colleague Amy Gardner's piece here in the Post. I think Amy broke this. She's a reporter, by the way, who broke the story about uh, his call, Trump's call with the Secretary of State, where he pressured him to find enough votes to reverse Joe Biden's victory. Well, now a prosecutor in Fulton County, the District Attorney there, Fannie T. Willis, is investigating. is opened a criminal investigation into efforts to overturn the election in the wake of that call. Uh, Amy writes that in a letter to the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, Williams did not mention Trump by name, but stated that her office is examining a raft of potential criminal charges related to attempts to influence the administration of the 2020 election. In Georgia. So, you know, that didn't take long. (laughs) And it seems to me that former President Trump, this this is where he is going to be most vulnerable, right? We've been saying this for a while from state investigations, from state prosecutors. We'll see if this goes anywhere. I don't know. There's, again, a pretty compelling body of evidence. There's a phone call, you know. Lordy, there are tapes. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. It will be striking if at the end of the day, it is state officials that ultimately administer the kind of justice that many people will believe that the Congress failed to in the four years while Donald Trump was president.
2: Yeah. Can I just add about that? Like, I don't think that would be a terrible outcome, right? So let's, let's take for a moment the apparent reality that the Senate is you know, not going to convict him. And we're fighting over how close they'll get, but they're not going to get that close and they're certainly not going to do it. Let's also assume that making a federal case against Donald Trump will be, you know, it's possible, but you'd have to really want to do it. And it's probably not high on the Biden administration's list of things to do. If I were a prosecutor in Georgia and the secretary of state of Georgia had released a tape of the president of the United States bullying him to change the election results in Georgia. And I had a statute on the books like the one they have in Georgia. That put a little gleam in my eye. And, you know, maybe this is a fine way to do it. You know, Congress can't get its act together, but a Democratic prosecutor in a Democratic uh, jurisdiction in Georgia, you know, has a fire under her butt about it. And like, like, maybe that's, you know, federalism in action and a kind of attractive resolution.
3: Yes, I think it is attractive given the paralysis in Congress, but I also worry about the consequences because, you know, take these few senators, Republican senators who were willing to do the right thing, or Congress people like Liz Cheney, who have already been censured by their state Republican parties and will be challenged and primaried by Republicans at the state level, right? Any Republican state official who is not seen as sufficiently supportive of the president is already under fire in their local Republican context. And so if you have a state Democratic official, like in Georgia, Prosecuting a case against the former Republican president of the United States, I think you're basically lending oxygen to the local base, pro-Trump base of the Republican Party, and you're threatening both moderate Republicans who might rise and rescue the Republican Party from Trump and the state-level Democrats you need to secure future elections. So I agree with you. It is a path to accountability, but it's one that I think comes with a lot of political risk for the Democrats and for democracy.
1: It's hard to find one that doesn't too, right? I mean, these things are all political minefields. Well, now back to our current programming, the actual (laughs) president.
3: (laughs) (laughs) The president who actually cares about governing the country. He
1: just just shows up in the morning and does his job kind of quietly and then goes home.
3: (laughs) Although I think his his arm is getting a little tired from signing all these things. A lot of
1: stuff, a lot of stuff, a lot of memos, a lot of memoranda, a lot of policy positions.
3: Yeah, we get to practice our our Latin plural, memoranda.
1: Memoranda. I I will point out that. that he's got somewhere between a 55
2: and a 60 one percent approval rating right now and just (laughs) Just for showing up just for like showing up (laughs) doing a quiet job not saying anything super embarrassing being like an adult like people kind of like it it.
1: and it seems from the press from the pool reports that they're like calling lids at a civilized hour every day which is you know when when they call a lid is when the reporters it's like go home because we're not going to make any more news today well, let's talk about some of the the orders and the the documents that that Biden has been issuing, um, particularly as they relate to national security and foreign policy, both kind of affirming American commitment and values and priorities, but also doing some you know some rejiggering and some rearranging of of certain bodies like the National Security Council. Tammy, you know, new presidents often do this. I mean, this is nothing new. Uh, there's a little bit of kind of coming in, and you know. I guess sort of like, you know, changing the drapes a little bit, doing a little, little interior decorating on the uh, on the interagency.
3: Right. You swap out the gold drapes for the Navy yeah. drapes and the yeah. overall.
1: For sure. Yeah. One of Biden's memoranda memoranda is called Revitalizing America's Foreign Policy and National Security Workforce Institutions and partnerships. So kind of give us a big picture look at what he's doing with this. And then there's another order that we're going to talk about and, and and what it means exactly that he is revitalizing, to use that term.
3: Yeah. Well, and it's it's interesting because that memo was issued last week, along with a sort of standard new president's memo about who's on the National Security Council and who's on the Principals Committee and stuff, which we'll talk about in a minute. And the National Security Council one got way more attention than this one about the national security workforce. But frankly, I think this one is much more significant. There's a lot packed in there. It covers really three or four different, very different topics. And it's really, really meaty. And so when it says revitalizing the National Security Council workforce, it's really taking on two things at once. One is the damage done by the Trump administration in you know, seeming to retaliate against people in the intelligence community or the State Department who crossed the president's political interests and things like that. But more than that, it's looking at how to make the national security workforce as a whole work better for the country. And so it lays out... Um, Six principles that it wants to operate across the national security workforce, integrity, transparency, diversity, equity, inclusion and accessibility, modernization, service and accountability. And, you know, pulling out of those, I would say integrity is the top one where it says very, very clearly that it wants national security professionals in the government to offer their expert views without fear of reprisal or retribution, you know, so directly contra Trump. But then it also very strongly makes the argument that the U.S. can't do national security policy effectively unless it can figure out how to bring into government a bunch of technical specialties we don't have a lot of in government right now, like on cyber, for example, and if it can't figure out ways to let people engage in public service over the course of a career that might not all be spent in government. And that is really revolutionary, you know, not just a, a trial program here or there or an odd fellowship, but really trying to integrate public service, having people come into and out of public service in national security in a regular way. And so it tasks the interagency to review every hiring authority relating to the national security agencies, including a really big one, which is veterans preference and the way veterans preference affects civil service hiring. And anyone who works on hiring in the federal government will tell you that veterans preference among other things, has a really negative impact on diversity in the federal workforce because the vast majority of our veterans are men. Um, So, you know, when veterans preference weighs heavily as it does now, it has an impact on diversity. A couple other things I want to highlight out of this memo. One is there's a lot of talk about engaging state and local government and really opening up the policy process to inputs from other levels of government and from academia and the private sector and civil society. And the other thing is jammed in there at the end, foreign policy for the middle class. Every national security agency is given 90 days to come up with a list and give it to the White House of what it is doing, on foreign policy for the middle class. So this is like the first substantive component of a long-standing White House theme.
1: What does that mean doing policy for the middle class?
3: <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> well, no, it's a really good question and like the way this tasking is written, <laughs> it's, you know, it is not what they're going to get is not we're rethinking the way we write trade agreements. What they're going to get instead is Look at these great trade agreements we've already negotiated, and the labor protections they have for American union workers, right? So it's really a it's written as a box-checking exercise rather than really transforming the way we think about foreign policy. And I, I get you know I will give them the benefit of the doubt that this is step one, but it's not super meaty.
2: Okay, I want to be a little snottier about this. Um, <laughs> I was hoping
1: you might.
3: Um,
2: there are policy areas that beg class issues. With the solitary exception of trade policy, foreign policy is generally not in those buckets. There's not like, well, the ruling class, the the capital, the stock owning class really wants us to have better relations with Luxembourg because they're where the banks are but you know the working class really wants us to go with bolivia you know like like it's not the way foreign policy works and so i would just say every political community has its areas of bullshit and this is one of the democratic party's areas of bullshit
0: no no that
2: no, that there just isn't such thing as foreign policy for the working class And, you know, let's let's stop pretending there's good foreign policy and there's bad foreign policy. You know, trade policy certainly has class dimensions. But if you're talking about building a general foreign policy based on, you know, class differences domestically,
1: you're kind of full of shit. Tammy.
3: (laughs) Okay, so look. I don't think we're talking here about like high politics. okay? solving the Arab-Israeli conflict or negotiating arms control agreements with the Russians are not going to have a massive impact on the middle class. But I think the whole point of raising this issue as a thematic concern is, well, it's twofold. Number one is it is telling the national security agencies and the presidential appointees who lead them, you better be able to explain why what you do matters to somebody in Peoria. And frankly, they do need to do a better job of that. And it's important. So that's number one. But number two is there are a myriad smaller things that are really important to the way Americans feel about the rest of the world. Just think about like the fact that you used to be able to fly to Mexico without a passport. And now you can't. Right. So then you need a passport. A passport costs minimum like a hundred bucks. And if you need it fast, it costs a lot more than that. Well, if I'm a middle class family, a hundred dollars is not an insignificant expense. And it's not a surprise that it's a minority of Americans who actually hold a passport and have the ability to go, you know, to the Bahamas or whatever. So you know that's one example. Another example is how much it costs to apply for citizenship, which Trump actually tried to like double or triple the cost of applying for citizenship in this country as a way of deterring applications. So that that stuff matters. The United States spends taxpayer money to send commercial delegations abroad to you know make deals with foreign companies and sell American products. And, you know, are we only bringing General Dynamics and Bechtel on those trips? They can do their own, you know, commercial exploration. Or are we bringing small and medium-sized businesses from states, you know, businesses that don't have resources to access the U.S. Chamber of Commerce? So I actually think there really are real issues here. And the point is to push agencies to think about the way what they do affects the American middle class.
1: One thing I want to take note of, too, in um, the second memorandum on the NSC structure.
3: Oh, yeah. some good tidbits in there.
1: Yeah. So one thing that struck me that was interesting is, so Biden's NSC is going to include a number of officials, including the ambassador to the UN, the director of the Office in Science Technology Policy, the administrator for USAID as regular members, and the CIA director will be an additional advisor.
3: Which, In addition to the DNI. who's
1: Right, American. right, yeah. right, right. So you're going to have, and John Bellinger has a good piece, fleshing some of this out on Lawfare, that I'll recommend to people that Bill Burns is going to be, you know, this experienced diplomat, former deputy secretary of state, former undersecretary, previously ambassador to Russia. So, you know, as as John points out, no surprise, Biden would want him in the situation room, but Avril Haines will also be there. So when you have the advisor, the director of national intelligence, who's the chief advisor on intelligence to the president, also in the room, with someone who with no disrespect to director Haynes has a much longer resume uh, and kind of steeped in this, it's going to be interesting as Bellinger points out, like, well, who gives the advice and what does that mean? And like, it sounds great to say like everyone gives advice, but like, come on, I mean, this is, that is not how things work and often how you don't want them to work. So it's just, it's notable to me, like, as we're sort of kind of trying to read between the lines a bit for how Biden envisions the intelligence community Operating. It's been clear from the beginning that he wants the DNI to play a very outfront role. It's also becoming clear from the wiring on the back end that the CIA director, or at least this CIA director, is going to play a pretty big role. Tammy.
3: Yeah, you know, it's, I, I noticed that also. And I couldn't help but wonder whether part of what he's trying to do is put the CIA director in a similar position to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Oh, in other words, He's there to give the intelligence community's professional expert assessment, not to give a policy recommendation or a policy advice, just like the chairman.
1: Although people would say the DNI shouldn't give policy advice either. Like Intel community, people are like, we don't we don't give policy advice. We just advise policymakers. Right.
2: I mean, look, I think I've said this before on the show. And, you know, I think at the beginning of every administration the trump administration is the exception here there's this question about whether is this going to be the time that the dni becomes a more substantial position <laughs> and every administration has the ultimately so far there're it's it's an n, a relatively small n but every administration has the, the same answer which is no and the reason is that the cia is the is the agency with the agents in the field it's the one with the drones officers. in the sky officers oh, well, agents and, agents yes, in the, sorry, and sorry, yeah sorry. both um it's the one with the drones in the skies and it's also the one with what uh the old hands at the agency call the pointy end of the spear and uh and so presidents become more reliant on it because it's operational And, you know, so look, if anybody is the kind of powerhouse that can change that, it's Avril Haines. And if anybody is, any president coming in is savvy to this dynamic, it is Joe Biden, who's been around a White House a lot and understands this dynamic very well. And he is clearly making an effort here to have a slightly different org chart that actually matters Color me skeptical of it until we're three years in and, you know, the DNI is the is really the principal intelligence uh, figure in the cabinet.
1: Yeah. And I think it just is as a last coda on this and I would underscore, I don't really have any reporting on this. It's just more my kind of the question. I don't know Bill Burns. I don't imagine that being CIA director was a lifelong ambition for Bill Burns. Um, so my guess would be like, you know, maybe you do this for a couple of years and then you go be secretary of state. And then if you're David Cohen, you become CIA director. I mean, if if this is true and we're seeing here, and I think this could be true at DOJ too, or maybe you might expect Merrick Garland to be AG for two or three years and then Lisa Monaco to take that job. It's like everyone's doing a job, and then everyone will kind of move and do another job. And I wonder if it's you know not to say that Bill Burns will phone it in as CIA director, but you know if he just decides to spend like, hey, two years CIA director, cool, I'll do operations well, might call it. Uh, well, maybe, yeah, in, in which case, well, then David Cohen's very lucky because he'll be running the CIA.: The geographical model you might call it. Uh, In fact, yes. I'm just imagining like a car. This is the Haspel model. (laughs) (laughs) It could just be that, I mean, if Bill Burns is planning, again, I have no reporting to suggest this, is I'm going to hang out here, do a cool job, do a good job running CIA for two years, and then go over and do the job that I kind of actually wanted to do, then maybe it-
3: That would be be quite an assumption to make.
1: Okay. Well, maybe I won't make it then.
3: I'm just saying, like you
1: know, I'm just imagining, like no, I mean, it it would be
3: quite an assumption for Bill Burns to to think that he, if Tony Blinken leaves the top of the State Department, that the job is his for the asking. Mm
1: -hmm. Maybe Tammy has some reporting. Okay, well, we'll see what's going to happen. We'll see what's going. We'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. Remember when we used to say that? We'll see what happens. Yeah. We don't see what happens anymore. We just do. And we write memos. <laughs> and sign them. We sign memos.
3: We sign memos. Affirming our commitment do. to
1: lots of things. All the things. Speaking of all the things, things that we used to not do and things we're doing again. We're back into multilateralism. Multilateralism is sexy again, you guys.
3: We have to all work on our, on our ability to say it three times fast. Multilateralism.
1: Multilateralism.
2: I can say multilateralism sequentially as many times as you want.
1: Excellent. Well, you're going to be saying it a lot in the next four multilateralism,
2: years. Multilateralism, multilateralism, multilateralism,
1: multilateralism. So many laterals. Yeah. Oh, God. Multilateral. Uh, uh, Tammy, we took it as a given that President Biden would rejoin organizations like the World Health Organization, which the Trump administration left, that we go back into the Paris Climate Accord. Uh, that he would reaffirm U.S. commitment to NATO, which he did, I think, in the first week when he tweeted out his phone call with the Secretary General of NATO. So how does the new administration rejoin these organizations while at the same time dealing with the obvious political reality that a large number of Americans, including American policymakers, are skeptical or even hostile to these groups and to the idea of, you know, we're still I mean, there's still a big part of the country that believes America first uh, and, you know, will immediately just reject any kind of idea that, no, what we should do is go back and hold hands with all of these funny lateral organizations.
3: Yeah. So I think that there is that general skepticism about especially about the U.N. and U.N. organizations that they, you know, are. There, there are various versions of this over the decades that, you know, they're penetrated by the Soviets or, you know, the Soviet bloc. And and these days on the right, you see that criticism in terms of Chinese penetration of the U.N., right? And that's part of the conservative objection to... Or
1: lizard people penetration of it now. Yeah,
3: well, or the aliens that haven't been revealed to us yet. but Well, well that's be a given. Too, we know that. Right? Yeah. You know, and so... I think that there's also like a real duality in the American public's view, though. Like, they want the United States to lead in the world. Poll after poll will show that. And, you know, so the Biden administration says, America is back. We're here to lead. But at the same time, Americans don't want to carry any extra burden, any, you know, disproportionate share of the burden on the world stage. Well, you can't lead without assuming a certain amount of leadership burden, right? So there's a kind of duality there. Americans want good allies. They want strategic partners. They they don't want America to go it alone in the world. Um, but they don't like having obligations to other countries. And they, you know, they don't want to feel like they might get dragged into somebody else's conflict. You know, you can see some of this, too, in terms of like the immediate decision of the Biden administration to rejoin the World Health Organization. You know, Americans say, yeah, that's great. We need to cooperate globally to fight this virus. But, you know, we're very suspicious of the World Health Organization um, because it was too soft on China and we're suspicious of of the Chinese. You know, and so it was interesting to me, like what symbolized this duality most of all was this past week when Secretary of State Blinken announced that the US was going to re engage with the UN Human Rights Council. They didn't say rejoin because they're not rejoining yet. Um, They're trying to thread this needle. So they said the US will re engage at the Human Rights Council as an observer. Now, I'm guessing that this is preliminary to rejoining in a full sense. Um, And being an observer at the Human Rights Council lets you do a lot, including speak in front of the council and sponsor resolutions with members of the council. Um, And so it'll let the U.S. coordinate with, say, Western European governments on condemning Chinese human rights abuses. It'll let the U.S. do almost everything that being a member would do, but they couldn't just rejoin. And I think that that's, you know, it'll, it's, it'll be interesting to see if they succeed in threading that needle. It'll be interesting to see if they succeed in convincing the American public of the value of this kind of multilateralism. Paris also, okay, we rejoined Paris. What does that mean? Like, what does that get us, really? Um, and I think that's, that's going to be the harder part.
2: So, a couple of things. This is a very old tension. And people forget this, but we came in the 50s within a hair's breadth, I think one state, um, short of a constitutional amendment to make it way harder to join international organizations, the so-called Bricker Amendment. And this was... That's a a deep cut for you, uh, U.S. foreign policy folks. You know, and what was that about? It was about, you know, the perception on the part of Southern senators that international law was gonna be used to restrict slavery. Not slavery, sorry, Jim, Jim Crow. Crow. This was a, a big tension. It was a big part of what drove the sort of Taft wing of the Republican party. And it's an old thing, you know, this suspicion of the U- the transatlantic alliance The Birch Society had a big whole thing about world government, which was partly about communism, but was just partly about international cooperation. It is fueled by a number of things. One is crazed isolationism. Another is the fact that a lot of these UN agencies are actually really corrupt and uh, behave terribly. And, you know, the And the only thing worse is not having them. Well, I mean, I query whether that's true of the Human Rights Council. It is certainly true of the WHO, right, which behaved really badly with respect to China on on the Wuhan situation. And by the way, the reason there is no uh, smallpox in the world is because of a WHO vaccination program right and so like like it is possible to say hey some of these some of these agencies really are not functioning the way you would want them to function and also understand that you know us suspicion of international organizations has roots in a lot of things including you know american pathologies and um those two things feed on each other in a very regular way and i think You know, figuring out how to engage constructively with organizations, given our own domestic pathologies and the pathologies of the organizations in question is actually a very hard problem.
1: I wonder if one way that the Biden administration could win supporters on both sides of the political aisle for this is, you know, pick a tangible goal, for instance, getting tough on China. Right. And specifically, go after China on the Uyghurs issue. Right? You get the human rights people on board. Nobody's going to defend concentration camps. You can make it a trade issue by saying we want to put pressure on China that's exporting cotton that's been picked by slave labor. Uh, by by Uyghur laborers. You can use multinational organizations to do that. I mean, I thought that was the whole point of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, was that we were <laughs> going to create a new trade agreement in Asia and not invite China, <laughs> right? I mean, it seemed pretty obvious, and we could, you know, that's that's for another day. But like, there's a way to re-engage with these organizations that kind of seems to scratch the itch of like, the feel good multinational side, which tends to be more democratic. And then maybe the more conservative side, which says, no, China's an adversary. We gotta get tough. Great. Then let's use US weight and muscle and leverage with these other organizations and take it to these guys.
2: You know, there was a there was a thing that was gonna do that. It was called the Trans Pacific Partnership. (laughs) And Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump agreed that it should not, it should it has to go.
3: Well, okay. Well,
2: didn't she also help, right? But,
3: yes, when she was Secretary of State. So, yes, a trade agreement is, is a great tool for that. But I don't think that a trade agreement, yay or nay, is going to persuade Americans of the value of, like, UN agencies. I think that – and the problem is that actually doing the nitty-gritty work inside a UN body to have an impact on another state's behavior, to set better human rights standards or whatever – It takes a really long time. And for most of that period of time, you're out there complaining about another state's behavior and nothing is changing. And Mm -hmm. so you look really ineffective. I think that what tends to have more impact in public opinion is when they see the American representatives to these bodies, you know, speaking frankly and bluntly uh, in a confrontational way. And that's why Nikki Haley was so popular Because she would go to the Security Council heedless of actually getting anything done in the body and basically lambaste them for being the Security Council. So obviously that's too far on the confrontational end, but it will be very interesting to see how Linda Thomas-Greenfield decides to play that role. Because you're right, Shane, there are definitely times and places where the U.S. representative can be very forward leaning and staking out, you know, American views and American principles and beating up on other PERM-5 members for for misbehavior. And so, you know, we'll see if she decides to take that tack.
1: Yeah, I know we don't want to start a new Cold War, but God, you've got all the great ingredients of one. <laughs> right yeah, there.
3: including the nuclear weapons. So awesome.
1: Did you guys see we were flying, what was it, B-2s up in Norway? Did you see this the other day? Yeah. Which is awesome. basically like, hi, Russia. Yeah. We can see your house from here.
3: We can see Russia from this B-52.
1: <laughs> All of Russia. All right, let's go on to uh, object lessons. Um, I will go first. I am going to uh, alert readers to a book that I just got a copy of that I've just started reading. It is called The Daughters of Kobani, A Story of Rebellion, Courage, and Justice, by the, uh, the journalist Gail Semak-Lemon. People may be familiar with her book, Ashley's War, which was about uh, female uh, special operations forces. Uh, this is about the, uh, this new book, The Daughters of Kobani, or about the, uh, the female Kurdish fighters uh, who fought ISIS and kicked their ass, uh, as the book tells me. It's a really fascinating story the the Kurdish fighters are renowned for their military prowess and also this book is about kind of both the um the particular fighting skill of the women fighters and commanders, but also this group of them for whom the idea of women serving in the military is part of an overall kind of political philosophical ethic of equality and gender equality. And so it's seen as not only kind of a fight for their literal survival in terms of going after uh, these forces, uh, but also a for their kind of political and, uh, a survival as well, and social. Uh, so it's a very it's it's a very compellingly written book. She spent a lot of time with these fighters on the ground, um, and goes into the introduction a little bit about how uh, um, she got onto the story, which is also just a great journalism story about how she kind of fell into it. Um, so check it out, Daughters of Kobani. I think people will like it.
3: She is so great, and she's um, in addition to being a great journalist and writer, she's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations.
1: She's
2: also uh, been on the Lawfare podcast uh, at least once and maybe more than that, talking about SDF fighters uh, whom she has spent a huge amount of time with. Also, Ashley's War is an amazing
3: book.
1: Also, can I just say, like as a book author and as a journalist, the blurbs when you get blurbs like this, the blurbs that she's got on the back of the book
3: Who's blurbed it?:
1: Bill McCraven, Hassan Hassan, Sebastian Younger.
3: Wow. Elizabeth
1: Gilbert and Angelina Jolie.
3: Oh my God. Wow.
1: Girlfriend doing it right.
3: Doing it right. Gail, doing it there right. You
1: go. go get it. Ben. Well,
2: I have been inundated this week with people sending me a Washington Post article. It is an article about, we might say, a baby cannon casualty.
1: Oh, I know where this I almost sent you this.
2: Yes, well, you almost, and about <laughs> 300 of your closest friends, in fact. Um, so first of all, I just want to say that um, baby namings, gender reveal parties, baby showers, if there's a word, an infant involved, like a human infant, Don't bring explosives. Yes, this is a very basic rule. Like like we a lot of forest fires are being set by people blowing things up to celebrate babies. Just you know, champagne, cigars.
3: Champagne can explode.
2: Clapping your hands, hugging, not during COVID, of course. Family in Michigan has a nice little cannon. They blew it up to celebrate at the uh, baby shower, the cannon exploded and shrapnel killed somebody present. I think
1: grandmother? I thought thought it was a younger person, but yeah. Either way, it's bad. It's bad.
2: So first of all, to everybody sending me uh, this with warnings about baby cannon, I will say we blow up baby cannon under pretty controlled circumstances with appropriate protective equipment. To number two... If you've never done it before and you're new to it, maybe get some help. Like, learn how to do it before you blow things up. I thought these people were
1: canon experts, though. Well, they had
2: used this canon before, apparently. It was not the first time. they. I'm not sure they did anything wrong. Number three... Baby cannon is much smaller than a signal cannon like this and uses a lot less powder. This was
1: like a BB gun. This was like a, an, like a cannon. This was yeah, like, I mean, it know, was like, you know, you know, not full size, uh, but number
2: three, you know, if there are cracks in your cannon, don't use it. Oh God. <laughs> so don't kill grandma. Uh, and yes, I already know about the Washington post story about the baby cannon fail. Oh
1: God. You know, who doesn't do these things at baby showers? Gays, <laughs> <laughs> and and somewhere out there, there's a gay who did this, and somebody's going to tweet at me the article, and that person is going to be in big trouble. Don't do this. What is this gender? It's like the the, the blue cake, the pink cake. the, oh, the, the, stuff gen- well, the of-
2: whole gender reveal party is a ridiculous thing because even if you think you know your child's gender, they're going to surprise you when they're 13. Yeah, just you
1: wait. You're going you're gonna to wish you had a cannon. <laughs>
2: yeah. yeah. You're going to oh wish you had a modesty about revealing their gender before they wow. were ready for you
1: too. Wow. Well, we need no canon to reveal that it's the end of the podcast.
3: Poof! Aww.
1: Poof. Boom! That should, the the Canon should more signal the beginning of the podcast, perhaps. Yeah. But nevertheless, Rational Security is a production of Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find gender-neutral Canon celebratory items at uh, Baby Canon Store. I think it's Mini
2: Canon tech,
1: tech. Mini Canon
2: Tech. Mini Canon Tech is the name of the company. The actual, actual the website. This cannon? is
1: not a joke this time. This is an actual website. It's an actual <laughs> website, and I endorse it. Ben likes it very much. You can find us on Twitter at RATLsecurity. We are still on Facebook. You can find us there. Uh, Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave a rating and review. It really helps us out and it helps other people find the show, which we love. Our audio engineer this week was Zachary Frank from Goat Rodeo. The show is produced and edited by Jen Patia Howell. Uh, music this week by Bruce Castor and his Jug Band rendition of the Pixies' Where Is My Mind.
3: <laughs> nice, <laughs> nice one. Yep. Very good, Shane.
1: He, he could have just done that and it would have oh, been yeah. fine.
3: Although I do just, think the band
2: name that came up during yesterday's impeachment argument was Insatiable Lust for Impeachment from Sean <laughs> who uh, I thought Insatiable Lust for Impeachment would be a good name for a band, and I tweeted that. And then somebody connected me, quote tweeted my tweet and Tim Noah's tweet, which is was Insatiable Lust for Impeachment is a great name for a Milan Kundera novel.
1: (laughs) The unbearable, insatiable light of impeachment. (laughs) Book of Laughter and Impeachment. That's about what it felt like. Well, Sophia Yam would definitely play in one of those bands. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, on behalf of my good friends, Ben Wittis and Tamara Kaufman Wittis, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Kaboom.
0: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers.